0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 10. We've been making our way through Matthew. Um, I've entitled the morning's message, Wineskin, Swords, and Rewards. And we actually have uh, three different subject banners that do blend together. Uh, In chapters 5 through 7, we have the Lord giving the Beatitudes somewhere around the area of Capernaum, northern part of um, um, Sea of Galilee. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we had uh, 12 miracles where the Lord began to display uh, the fact that he was indeed the promised Messiah because only the Messiah could perform the miracles that were performed. We have six miracles taking place in chapter 8. and we have six miracles taking place in chapter 9. We see him performing miracles and healings, even raising a little girl from the dead. And in three different instances, showing his authority over the demonic realm by casting demons out of individuals. And that brings us to chapter 10. We'll go back to verse 1 in just a bit, but let's read our text where Paul read for us earlier, 37 to 42. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Of course, that would be the Father. And he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall in no means lose his reward. Let's go back to um, chapter 10 because uh, the first four verses here, the miracles that Jesus performed in chapters 8 and 9, he is now for the first time going to call 12 men. And he's going to empower them. Uh, with the same power that he demonstrated in chapters 8 and 9. And we have their names given to us here, and I'm going to read them. But what I want to point out, and we're going to do, even before we get into our main part of the study this morning, I'm going to do a little rabbit trail. And I want to talk about the gift of being an apostle. Because we're going to read in verse 2 that they go from being called disciples apostles. So let's pick it up in verse 1, chapter 10. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases. And now the names of the 12 apostles, the first was Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew's called Levi. James, the son of Alphaeus and Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. So two things I'll point out here. He's calling them, they're named. Um, We know later Judas is going to betray him. And the Lord said, concerning Judas Iscariot, it would have been better that that man had never been born. And he is replaced um, by Paul, and we know that because there's only 12 apostles. And I get that reference. When uh, when Paul writes his epistles, he says, Paul, an apostle. That's how he starts it out. So obviously when Judas was down to 11, the Lord's choice, even though it was the disciples' choice, the Lord's choice was the Apostle Paul. Now, I believe there are only 12 apostles. You don't have to turn there, but in Revelation 21.4, when it talks about the new Jerusalem, 21.14, it says, Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I'm going to have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and while you're turning, I want to talk a little bit about those who believe that the office of um, uh, apostle is still in existence today. And like I said, I personally do not believe it is, and I'm going to give a couple examples for that this morning. And the reason I'm doing so is because there are groups out there that are holding that they have um, the operation of the gift of apostles in sight. Now, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 12, 12, 13, and 14 are dealing with the subject of spiritual gifts, how to use them, and to even desire them. So in verse 1, we're reading, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. One of the reasons I'm doing this little rabbit trail is so that you won't be ignorant when you hear somebody say that they're an apostle today. And as you look at um, verse 28, basically in chapter 12, the Lord is saying that there are many different gifts. Every born-again believer has a gift. And one of the things you should be asking the Lord about is, What gift, Lord, have you given to me? And are you exercising it? The other thing it points out here is that one gift isn't better than the other, and he likens it to the body parts of our body, that the eye can't say to the hand that I'm better than you are, or the foot to the arm, that we don't have any need of you. Collectively, as as, uh, my job as a pastor-teacher, that's one of the gifts, is to equip, through teaching, the church, so that you can do the work of ministry, to exercise your gifts in your realm of influence with the people that you're in contact with. Now, having said that, he sort of summarizes the importance of these gifts in the last three verses of chapter 12, where he says um, in verse 28, and God has appointed these in the church first. So the first one is apostles. The most important gift that God gave was to the disciples who he gave supernatural powers to. And I believe there's only 12 of them. It would have been appropriate for Paul to put apostles in here as one of the gifts. Why? Because he was an apostle himself. And, some of, and so were the disciples. They were alive at this time. And then it says, second, prophets. I believe the gift of prophecy. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, third, uh, teachers. After that, miracles and gifts of healings helps. Gift of administration. I always thought that uh, Betty had that gift. Uh, varieties of tongues. And then he asks the uh, hypothetical question. Are all apostles? The answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have the gift of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? Some would say the answer is yes there, but if you just follow the logic and the train of thought of what's being said here, the answer is no. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. There's a whole Bible study here, and I can't get into it, except I do want to talk about a movement out there today uh, that believes that the apostolic gifts of an apostle is in the church today, and I would take exception with that. I'm quoting from an article I read this week, a movement called the Independent Network Charismatic, or the INS, Christianity has become one of the fastest-growing faith groups in the United States. Apostles like Bill Johnson from the Bethel Church in California, Mike Bickle, uh, IHOP, Kansas City, Cindy Jacobs, Chuck Pierce, a couple of them that were part of the Kansas City prophets, Bob Jones. Bob Jones was actually up in Appleton, Wisconsin when he was alive. And wherever he went, there was a division a split in the church because some people were saying, like I'm saying this morning, it's not biblical. That office of apostle uh, is not biblical. But others bought into it, and but Bob Jones and Paul Kane, both part of the Kansas City prophets. We actually had people in the fellowship that got duped by it. Several families picked up, just moved on down to Kansas City because an apostle had spoken to them that that was their their calling. Um. Many of these apostles run megachurches, including Bethel Church in Reddings, California, uh, another one, a rock uh, church in Pasadena, and International House of Prayer IHOP, that's Mike Bickle. Uh, but their real power lies in their initiative uh, approach to selling faith. They've combined a multi-level marketing, Pentecostal signs and wonders, post millennial optimism, to collect, to connect, I should say, directly with millions of spiritual customers. That allows them to reap in millions in donations, conference fees and books and DVD sales. And because these apostles claim to get direct, straight revelation from God, they operate with almost no oversight or accountability. Uh, The NAR is a term you need to become familiar with, the New Apostolic Reformation. is a movement that was pioneered by C. Peter Wagner. Uh, When T.A. McMahon comes, he told me he's going to bring all of um, um, Paul Smith's book uh, that he wrote, probably one of the best books I've ever read, that deals with where the church started getting off at um, Fuller Seminary with two men in particular, and C. Peter Wagner was one of them, and John Wimmer was the other one. And that blossomed into, with John Wimber, what we call the Vineyard Movement, and that went worldwide. And um, it was simply um, uh, something that was um, man-made. They were putting uh, the signs and the wonders before the teaching of the Word. I remember when Chuck wrote a letter And said, that's not Calvary Chapel, so, John, you can't be a Calvary Chapel anymore, so take take your business elsewhere. And he did, and there were many vineyards from across the country. But what Paul does so well in his book, the new evangelicalism, and and, um, as he traces where it began with these two guys, and he brings it to a logical conclusion right up to the rapture of the church. And he shows that because of the dumbing down of the gospel and allowing these uh, false prophets that Jesus warned about and apostles um, to actually lead the church astray, and it's really going to all end up in a one-world religion in Rome. We know that's what the Bible teaches. But we're just, we know it's going to happen. But what Paul does a good job is he puts the pieces together, and he shows how we're moving towards that. Now this, the new... Um, apostolic reformation was pioneered by C. Peter Wagner. That is what uh, the charismatic doctrine looks like when it's taken to its logical conclusion. The NAR, or the new apostolic reformation, that not only the gifts, but also the office of an apostle, still continues today. And as apostles, they pretend to speak for God and wield his divine authority, but it is all merely a pretense, not also a big egos. What is the rationale behind the movement? According to Wagner, God's people can only ever return to pure Christianity as seen in the early church if they recognize, accept, receive, and minister in all the spiritual glyphs, including and especially that of an apostle. In other words, if an apostle spoke, it could even trump what the word of God might say. It would be a new revelation. Now, how many of you have heard, like I have, well, there's a new work that the Lord is doing. And where it's happening right now, let's say, I remember when it was in Brownsville, and everybody was going to Brownsville. And I remember when it was in Toronto, and everybody was running up to Toronto. I remember when Todd Bentley, who considers himself an apostle, was doing these revivals down in Florida. And people that I've known for years that had good discernment were getting duped and sucked into this, and they shouldn't have known any better. I want you to know better. First verse, First Corinthians 12, I don't want you to be ignorant of the role of an apostle. The role of the apostles came to an end when the last apostle died. Having said that, I believe, and I'm going to have you turn at this point to make the point that the gifts of the Spirit are still in operation today. And uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. And as you're doing that, I am going to quote the qualifications according to Scripture. if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you the statements, but then I'm going to give you the Scriptures to back them up. In order to be an apostle... You had to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Acts 1, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and 8. Number two, you had to be appointed by the Lord himself. That's in Mark 3, Luke 6, Acts 1, and Galatians 1. You also had to have the ability... Uh, to perform the same signs and wonders that Jesus himself did, including raising people from the dead. And that's what we see. We see six miracles in chapter 8 of Matthew. We see six miracles in chapter 9. And the first thing we read in our text from Matthew chapter 10 is that he gave the disciples who became apostles power to do all the things that he had done. Now, having said that, um, the gift of a prophet and the gift of prophecy, I believe, is still in order. And if you're in Acts 21, um, let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, um, this is Paul now. He says, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist. Remember Philip? He was called, he was the one who went down to um, the Gaza Strip and converted to Ethiopian. Um, well, he ended up living in Caesarea, beautiful place, that's, that's where I'd want to live. And uh, entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now look at verse 9. Now this man, Philip, had four daughters, virgin daughters, who prophesied the gift of prophecy is not exclusive to men. These four gals all had that gift. And as they stayed many days, a certain prophet. Well, now we have a prophet named Agabus, who is not one of the the 12, and that is clearly called a prophet, came down from Judah, and when he came to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his hands and his feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking in the name of the Lord, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when they heard these things, we and those at that place, they began to plead with Paul. Paul, don't go. Here was a man of God saying, they're going to tie you up and they're going to beat you up. Don't do it. And Paul's answer to that is, guys, why are you breaking my heart? You know, I I appreciate your love for me and your concern. But he says, I'm not... Only ready to be bound, but I'm also ready to die if necessary at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. So when they would, he would not be persuaded. We ceased and said, "Well, the Lord's will be done." But here we have a word of knowledge, you might call it. Uh, we have a prophet exercising his gift. Say, Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. The other thing I want to point out here is that these four gals had the gift of prophecy, and so. The only gift that I believe ceased to exist was that of the apostles, simply because they're all with the Lord at this time. Good place for an amen. Okay, so that was a, that was even before I wanted to deal with this a little bit, um, but now we'll get into our study. This morning I would like to uh, look at three examples from Matthew. Like I said, I've, I've called this wineskin, swords, and rewards. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 9 and look at At the wineskins. It deals a little bit with the topic of fasting in chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, but it lays the foundation for the teaching of the wineskins that Jesus is going to give. So in chapter uh, 9, verses 14 and 15, let's read those first. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, when it comes to fasting, uh, for believers today, fasting does have a real value. Uh, Having said that, we don't have Any instructions or commands to fast. Fasting should be done with the idea that we're offering ourselves more wholly to the Lord by denying pleasures of the flesh. Um, It's like Paul's sword in the flesh, where the Lord says, When you're weak, Paul, then, then I'm strong on your behalf. Well, when you deny yourself, you know, food for whatever period of time, your body becomes weaker but you spiritually become stronger. And so we don't really have a mandate that we have to, but um, um, we do find it being uh, used right here. But it lays the groundwork for what he's going to say next in verse 16 and 17. He said, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine and the new wineskins and both are preserved. Here, our Lord is saying, by using this um, Example here of, the, of of the wineskins, something old has passed away. Um, we call it in theological terms a dispensation. The old dispensation of the Old Testament is coming to an end, and what is the Lord is doing is extremely radical because he's going to take people from the law the old wineskins and he's going to bring him into the era of grace and it's going to take it takes the whole book of hebrews uh, the salvation of Cornelius a gentile getting saved that's unheard of so new things were going to happen and he likes it he likens it into you don't take new wine you don't take grace and put it in an old wineskin the law and that is what he is bringing to the To the surface here. Actually, um, the Lord had come to provide a new garment, and that new garment was a robe of righteousness, which he gives to those who do nothing more than trust him. And we call that grace. In other words, our Lord is saying, I haven't come to sew patches on an old garment. I have come to present something completely new, something which is altogether new, this was very radical. And it's best summed up in John's Gospel for taking notes, John chapter one, verse seventeen, where it says the law, that came by Moses, but grace and truth, the new wineskin, that came by Jesus Christ. And you can't have them both mixed together. You can't put new wine into the old wineskin. Um, Romans would say it this way. Uh, Romans eleven verse six. If it's grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You can't have both. It's one or the other. So what the Lord is doing here with the wineskin illustration is he says, it's all new from here. And um, don't get me wrong, in the New Testament, it clearly shows the importance of the law as a school teacher that 's what it says as a teacher, If it wasn't for the law, Paul said, "I would have never known that it was wrong till it says "Thou shalt not covet till the law came and told me I coveted you know now i'm guilty because I need the law to show that I 'm a sinner so that I can accept god 's grace. Everybody with me so far so Second Timothy 1 verse 9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to the works, or I would say not according to the Old Testament law, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God knew that there would be this dispensation of the Old Testament, of the law but would only last for a period of time. And then the Lord says, I'm going to bring in a new covenant. So when you hear this word dispensation, I'm going to get a little sidetracked here, talking about dominion theology in just a minute, but just let me quickly go through um, what the Bible teaches as periods of time. We have the Old Testament. We have uh, roughly 4,000 years. We have the New Testament. We call it the church age or the age of grace, roughly 2,000 years. Then we're going to have the church removed. Time frame? Nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or the hour. But we know that it's after when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, when the last person that's going to get saved gets saved before the rapture. Then it says all Israel will be saved. So the church age will come to the end with the end of when the rapture happens. Then we enter into a seven-year period of time called the tribulation. And after the tribulation, and only after the tribulation, does Jesus Christ return and sets up his kingdom. But that happens after the tribulation. Now, I want to do a little sidetrack here and again talk about what's called Dominion Theology or Kingdom Now Theology. And in a nutshell, I'll read something from Dr. Tommy Ice here. Tommy's recovering from his heart attack, and we're, we're praying for him. Um, but I'm, um, this is an article that he wrote. I just took a couple of paragraphs so that you'd have a, you would know, have a Reader's Digest version of what um, Dominion Theology, sometimes called Kingdom Now Theology, The idea is you guys are living in the kingdom right now, and if this is the kingdom right now, I am really disappointed. I haven't seen any lambs laying around with lambs anywhere. I see them eating them up, but uh, I'm quoting Tommy. Uh, He's defining dominion theology, he calls it DT, advocates belief that Dominion over every area of life has been restored by the first coming of Christ. Since we are now in the kingdom, that is where the synonym uh, from kingdom now comes from, they believe that the present task of the church is to call believers to reclaim the rule of Christ on planet Earth by whatever means um, or brands um, to demonstrate the kingdom now theology. Modern dominionists make a mistake similar to those whom Christ spoke to in Luke 24:26, where Jesus says, was it not necessary? He's talking to Cleopas and his friend here. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, he was going to die. The disciples weren't counting on that. They were arguing, Jesus is here. The kingdom is coming. And they didn't understand. No, not yet. There would have to be the whole church age. So it is true with the church. Jesus suffered. She must first, talking about us, the church now, suffer. Also humiliation during this age. And then she, the church, will be exalted and exercise dominion after the return of Jesus and his kingdom. The key verse that a dominionist will use, and to me, you know, logic and common sense goes, you've got to be kidding me. You think this is the kingdom? You know, I just I, before I came down, I was just checking my emails, and there was another shooting with some kid who just went into a, um, a restaurant and killed four people. That's just today. day. Now we're just seeing this escalating. And... um you know, the kingdom is a time of righteousness and peace where the Lord himself is going to be ruling, it says, with a rod of iron. And so Common Sense Gang just tells us, ain't here yet. Good place for it, amen. <laughs> this is not it. And yet there are those who hold to that belief. Uh, they get their main verse in Genesis one twenty-eight. again, if you're taking notes, Um, he's speaking to Adam and Eve. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Here's Tay McMahon's favorite verse. And have dominion over fish, (laughs) because he likes Sophia Fisherman, of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, he's talking about the animal kingdom, and it was not meant to be applied to take this verse out of context And apply it that uh, we have to evangelize the world and make it a better place so that Jesus can come back and take dominion. And so hopefully now you know when someone says dominion theology or kingdom now theology, you know what they're talking about. All right, that's dealing with the wineskins. Something old passed away and now we have grace and truth. Let's go on to swords. Wineskins first, now swords. Let's go to chapter 10, verse of Not Matthew. Let's look at verse 16. Oh, we'll just, I can't read all of this, so I just was selective through 26. He's giving instructions to his disciples. He's sending them out, but now he's actually telling them um, what they're in for. And he says in verse 16, he says, Behold, I'm going to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to council and scourge you in the synagogue. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and also to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you, do not worry about what you would speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you will speak. For it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, brother, we'll deliver up brother, notice, to death. So here's the sword. And a father, his child, and children will be raised up and against parents and cause them to be put to death. The sword. And you will be hated um, by all of for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. This isn't taught when, when you're preaching the gospel today. And they're telling you what a great life you're going to have and your best life now sort of thing. Well, Jesus says just the opposite. He says, if you're going to follow me, you better be careful. You better be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, because people are not going to like you. And might I add... Who did I just see that took a stance? Um, Oh, Phil. What's Phil with the long beard TV show? Huh? My hearing's going. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, Roberts, the guy who could have read Terry Bradshaw instead of Terry Bradshaw. Um, They took a stand against homosexuality. It's in the news today. And because they said uh, they're calling them homophobics now. Because they're simply standing upon what the word of God says. And believe me, when I teach through Corinthians, I'll address the issue, and I'm not going to pull any punches. And you can, as you st- stand your ground, and uh, everybody here knows somebody who l- lives the alternative lifestyle, well, you're, you're going to be called a homophobic. And just like Jesus says, you're going to be hated. For what? for doing exactly what the Bible says we're to do. Never fear man. Forget man. Don't worry about what man thinks. Fear God. And that's what we're told here. I'm not going to have to give an account to any man. I have to give an account. You have to give an account to the Lord. And you better make sure that you're, what you're living is from this book and not what the social trends and, and um, society changes every other day anyway. So let's go on from here. Verse 22, you'll be hated. That's not very secret sensitive, Dwight. By all my namesake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. But when they persecute you, then just go to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master, if they called the master of the house Belsabob, they called Jesus a demon, the king of the demons, how much more will those of his own household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will be known. I call this swords um, slash A. Swords, B, we need to go down to um, well let's read verses or uh, in men 's prayer yesterday that, I, that are verses 31 and 30 and 31. Um, the lord's love for you, 29 are, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very heads of your hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows you that well. Do not fear, therefore, uh, you are more value than many sparrows. And therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. And one of the brothers brought this up yesterday in men's prayer just to encourage another uh, brother. And I said, I'm glad you uh, brought up that scripture, and I want to confirm it because it's part of my text tomorrow morning. So we're reading it yesterday morning and and this morning. Whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, the second sword in John 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And when I first read that, I thought, well, wait a second. Didn't the angel say peace on earth? And goodwill towards men? What about that? And what about the Bible promising a Christian that thou will keep him in perfect peace and that we have a peace that passes human understanding? So what's up with that? Well, you have to understand the the, the correct wording when the angel spoke. Uh, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, should actually be stated peace on earth for those who have made peace with the Prince of Peace. And that's the idea. Not every uh, person is going to have peace. But if you ask Jesus into your life, then he's with you all the way. He is the Prince of Peace. And so if you have the Prince of Peace living inside of you, you have that peace. That's not what's being said here. This peace is of those in your own family, okay? So he says, don't think that I've come to make everybody happy-clappy, that we're all one great big unit and we can all get along together. No, we can't. He says in verse 35, for I've come to set a man against his father. Well, the Bible says we're supposed to honor our father and our mother. Yes, that's true. But whenever the scripture clarifies something, and um, here is that clarification. A daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes will be those of his own household. Many people here knows those watching live stream know exactly what I'm talking about. You became one of those holy rollers. You became one of those Jesus freaks. And all you do, want to do now is talk about Bible study and the Lord's coming and, and they don't want to hear it. And it causes Friction. And it becomes uncomfortable around Thanksgiving time when you all have to sit around the same table. And are you going to pray? <laughs> well, that's going to be awkward. Don't do it because it's going to make them feel awkward. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. But Jesus clearly said it. Don't think I've come to, to make everybody. No, no, just the opposite, the sword. It's going to cause division. Well, division isn't good. The Bible says it is. No, Jesus says it is. A man's foes will be those of his own household. And he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Yeah, you love mom and dad. Yes, you love your unsaved family members, but you don't compromise with them. And realize that um, you have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves because you want them going to heaven and not going to hell. You know, one of the uh, I know too much about this book. Uh, and when I think about loved ones um, dying in their sins, I can't think about that too long because I know too much about it. And doing a, a funeral for somebody that's not saved is not one of my more favorite things to do. Because I usually don't talk about the person who's deceased. I want to talk to the living. Uh, while we have that time where they're actually maybe contemplating and thinking about their own mortality. What happens to me? Job's question, if a man dies, does he live again? Nonbelievers don't know for sure. And so funerals, according to Solomon, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party, because you'll actually think, think about that reality, that this is temporal, And after shoveling snow this last week, my back reassured me once again, you are getting old. (laughs) Went to my chiropractor, and um, hi, Todd. Todd watches, so I'll say hi to Todd. He straightened me out. uh, He fixed my back in five minutes, and we fellowshiped for the next 40. And uh, him and his wife have become born-again believers. And he wasn't expecting me to say that. I hope I didn't embarrass you, Todd. You'll get over it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) All right. Not peace, but a sword. It brings us to our last topic, rewards. Verse 41 and 42. It said, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of water in the name of a disciple. Now, in the other Gospels, Jesus says in my name. So, um, but the point is, I say he shall in no wise lose his reward. Even in little things that you do for your neighbors. Maybe you help them out with, with uh, the snow or whatever. Any little thing that you do, um, doing it in the Lord's name. Um, Let's turn to Luke chapter 19. The disciples themselves wanted their reward because they thought the kingdom was coming and they wanted to, you know, sit at the right and left hand of the Lord when his kingdom was right around the corner as far as they were concerned. We find that here in Luke 19, God bless you, in verse 11, Luke 19, verse 11 says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, notice, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear Immediately, so much for dominion theology. The disciples even thought that the kingdom was right around the corner. Therefore he said, and he gives this parable, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered unto them, uh, let's use dollars, ten minus, and said to them, occupy or do business until I come. But his citizen hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man rule over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, uh, that has not happened yet. He then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money, or we would actually say these gifts, uh, to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. What did you do with your Christian life? What did you do with the gift that I gave you? Well, one one of the men said, Master, you gave me a dollar, but now I have ten. And the Lord said, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in very little have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your dollar has earned five dollars. Likewise, he said, you also over five cities. And another one came, came. This guy doesn't know the Lord. He said, here's your dollar. I put it in a handkerchief for I feared you because I know you're a, you're a mean guy. And um, um, uh, showing that this wicked servant doesn't know the Lord. And so the Lord rebukes him and said, you should have at least put it in a bank so it would have gained interest. But to this one, he says in verse 20, he says, bring him here, those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. Now we can all identify with this. Um, part of counting the cost to become a Christian is you realize you're not the boss anymore. You have to pray about everything. Isn't that what it says? Acknowledge the Lord in some of your ways? No, no in all of your ways. And let's face it. Uh, there was a season of time. I wrestled with the Lord over this one. I was free spirit. Still, I'm a free spirit. And he set me free. But the fact is, I still have to acknowledge the Lord in all my ways. I'm saying, hey, we're going to um, Israel this November. And then I say, Lord willing. That's the plan. But Lord willing. Oh, we're going to check out the Grand Canyon with Russ Miller next month. Lord willing. So we make plans, but we always preface it, Lord, your will be done. And this man simply didn't want anyone to tell him what he could or could not do. And this is what holds a lot of people back from giving their life to Jesus Christ. I want to live in sin. I don't want to live the Christian life, if they'd be straight up and honest about it. I don't want anybody telling me what I can and cannot do. And when we're told that we're to pick up our cross daily, die daily, and follow him, well, we have here these uh, uh, examples. Notice the disciples thought the kingdom was coming. No. We're to do business until the Lord comes. What does that mean? We are to look for opportunities to exercise our spiritual gifts to bring people into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And um, so we're going to close this morning by looking at one judgment, but there's two different kinds of judgments. In Revelation 20, there's a great white throne judgment. We're not going to look at that one today. That's for those people who wanted to be saved by their works. And it says, the books were opened and everyone was judged by their works. I don't want to be judged by my works. I want to be judged by God's grace. Another good place for an amen. But there is a judgment seat that's for Christians. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, and um, where you are going to be rewarded, just like um, these men here uh, will be rewarded that we just read about. Turn to the book of uh, Revelation real quick chapters 2 and 3, and just show you some of the rewards that the Lord promised these churches. And I'm just going to read seven verses, one from each of the seven churches that Jesus spoke to. The first one is in chapter 2, and um, it is verse 11. This promise, he says, Be faithful and tend unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? These are those who stand before the great white throne judgment. They died once. They were resurrected to stand before the great white throne judgment. Their names were not put in the book of life, and they were cast into outer darkness In hell. And then it says, This is the second death. So, what's one of the promises for us? You don't have to worry about it. The second death does not involve you. It's one of the promises. The next one is verse 17 to the church of Pyramus He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, what does overcome mean? It means don't give up, it means just keep the faith. Believe in the gospel your entire life, cling to it, hold to it, and don't deny it. What did we read earlier? If you deny me, I'll deny you. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. What is an overcomer? One who continually will not compromise, no matter what condition or direction society is going in, we stay the course on that narrow road. Another good place for an amen. He says, to this one, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on his stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I'd love to get sidetracked here. I don't have the time. But we're talking intimacy and personalness between you and the Lord. The next one in um, chapter 2 is... um, In verse 25, he tells his church of Thyatira, Hold fast what you have till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. We're not going to be in heaven floating around on some cloud. No. We're directly involved with ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ during the kingdom age. This is one of the promises and rewards. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 5, we read, He who overcomes will be clothed in a white garment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. And I always say, if it's possible that that could happen, why even bring this up and mention it? I'll let you think about that by yourself. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The church of Philadelphia, he says in verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will go out no more and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, from God. And I will write on him my new name. And the last promise is in verse 21, He says to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Um, We're going to close this morning with 1 Corinthians 3. Please turn there. And while you're turning there, what we have here is our judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, and while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 5, I will quote from 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. Why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, when it says bad there, don't think of sin. Okay, why? Because your sins have all been forgiven, and you'll never be brought to shame. Well, then what's bad? Well, you're doing something, but with the wrong motive. And Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, because what? You'll lose your reward. But do it in secret. And that way, your Heavenly Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. So what's bad here? Well, you do it to gain attention. Oh, look at me. Look what i done. So on and so forth. All right, you got your reward. That's bad. So when it says in 2 Corinthians 5, the things that are judged at the judgment seat of Christ, whether good or bad... What was your motive? Did you have a good motive for doing it? Or did you have a bad motive for doing it? Did you want to be seen by men? Or did you do it because you were, as Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me to do what I do? I do it because I love Jesus. I want people to know the Jesus that I know. No agenda. Not looking for anything other than to be able to give freely what the Lord has freely given to me. Now, on 1 Corinthians 3, we have... Paul teaching about what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And let's read verses 11 uh, through 15 here. Paul says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifested, and the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. See, it's not, the issue isn't salvation. Uh, yet so as through fire. So what we have here. I'm going to quote from uh, Dr. Lehman Strauss the meaning of the judgment seat. is called, actually, the bema seat judgment. The Greek word bema, translated judgment seat in the King James, was a familiar term to the people of Paul's day. Dr. Lehman Strauss writes, In the large Olympic arenas, there was an elevated seat on which the judge of the contestant sat. And after the contest were over, the successful competitors would assemble before the bema to receive the rewards or crowns. The bema was not a judi- judicial bench where someone was condemned. It was a reward seat. Likewise, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judicial branch. The Christian life is a race and the divine umpire is watching every contestant. And after the church has run a course, he will gather every member before the Bema for the purpose of examining each one and giving the proper reward to each. So in 1 Corinthians 3, these verses, from these verses, it's apparent that God classifies the works of believers into the following six areas, gold, silver, precious stones, and then wood, and stubble. There have been much speculation about the kinds of work down here that will constitute gold or silver up there. But it seems more appropriate to note that these six objects can be readily placed into two separate categories. Number one, those indestructible and worthy objects which will survive and thrive in the fires. These are the gold, silver, and precious stones. Those destructible and worthless objects will be totally consumed in the fire. These are the wood, hay, and stubble. Though it's difficult to know just what goes to make up the the golden works or the stubble work, we are nevertheless informed of a certain general areas which God is particularly interested. I'll just give you two. We'll begin to wind up. Number one, how we treat our fellow believers. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. And then in Matthew 10, which is a part of our text this morning, we read, He that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And he that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever shall give a drink unto one of these little ones, a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. In Hebrews, also, how we exercise our authority over others. In Hebrews, it says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself because they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. And then it says, my brethren do not uh, have many masters knowing that they shall receive the greater condemnation. I believe they have pastors in sight here and I don't know how these megachurches with twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 people, how any pastor can say, I can give an account to such and such, and they know such and such, and that accountability simply is not there. All right. Did I say just one more verse one time ago? Yeah, well, I lied. One more verse. Matthew 6, this is the last one. Let's wind it up with this. And I'll preface it by saying the greatest reward of all is we're going to be home See our Lord face to face. And in heaven there's fullness of joy. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. And so if that be the case, and all the stuff here that we deem so important is nothing more than wood, hand and stubble, it's all going to burn. And you can't take nothing with you. Now if that's really the case, then this would be a good verse to close with, Matthew 6. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy where neither thieves break in and steal. And then it's man of the heart for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Wineskins, Swords and rewards. As we make our way through Matthew, we're finding it very instructive and very practical. And it also keeps us pointed true north in a world that is very much confused and very much going down the tubes. We stay in a straight and narrow and follow the Lord's simple teaching here, and we won't have to worry about a thing. Amen. A stand and we'll pray. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. As we continue in Matthew, we pray that you would go before us and uh, instruct us in your word. Thank you how practical your word is in teaching us, Lord, the right from the wrong. And it gives us discernment. Lord, this morning, as we learned, just the issue of apostles, that claim to be apostles today. It contradicts what your word clearly teaches. So we're grateful for the instruction, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.